Way before social media allowed memes and internet jokes to be a form of social currency, there was the office water cooler, a place where folks could kick back and share a laugh over the latest episode of their favorite show. These moments, perhaps shared over a cup of coffee and a donut, were a great way to communicate both a small laugh and a big idea. Today, we're going to dive into one small moment in television history that had a big impact on a medium-sized cookie. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. How was your trip to England? Oh, amazing. Seeing family, spending time with family. This has been so important to me and I had a fabulous time and I can't wait to tell you more through the pages of the As We Eat Journal. So stay tuned for some photos and some fun stories about all the things that I saw, did and ate while I was in England. Ah, that's awesome. I can hardly wait. What are we talking about today? So this episode was suggested by Abby Lamb. And Abby, we have some stories and segues for you. Oh boy, there are a lot of rabbit holes in this episode, so get ready, brace yourselves. I don't know if you remember, I certainly do, but throughout the early to mid-1990s, Seinfeld, the TV show, was on the rise as a major cultural zeitgeist. The show was popular water cooler chat fodder and spawned a great deal of long-standing pre-social media cultural references. In the dinner party, episode 13 of the fifth season, the Seinfeld audience was introduced or technically reintroduced to the black and white cookie. The setup is this. The gang is invited to a dinner party to which Elaine insists they must bring a bottle of wine and something from the bakery for hostess gifts. George and Kramer go to get wine while Jerry and Elaine go to the bakery. Their mission is pretty simple. It's just to get some chocolate babka, the bakery specialty. But there's a long line. And while they're waiting to be served, Jerry finds and enjoys a black and white cookie. And while he's eating this cookie, he says, quote, The thing about eating the black and white cookie, Elaine, is you want to get some black and some white in each bite. Nothing mixes better than vanilla and chocolate, and yet somehow racial harmony eludes us. If people would only look to the cookie, all our problems would be solved. End quote. In a testament to either Seinfeld's popularity or the commentary about the nature of dialogue about racial unity, this bit goes viral. Or as we always were talking about pre-blog, pre-social media, pre-influencer as a profession, <laughs> suddenly people on the West Coast, which is where I was living at the time, were scrambling to find a black and white cookie. And the more authentically New York the cookie, the better. But it seemed like just as fast it seemed to vanish. Or so I thought. 
Apparently, the bit about the cookie is still au courant in 2008, when presidential candidate Barack Obama referred to it as a unity cookie as a metaphor for racial harmony while at a press stop in Hollywood, Florida. I don't really actually know that much about the black and white cookie or the half moon cookie or whatever we want to call it. Blake, can you please educate me? Absolutely. So we're going to start with a little history. And by little, I mean little. Unlike the cheesecake and the bagel, and much to the chagrin of many New Yorkers, there's no definitive history on the origins of the black and white cookie. And by the same token, there's no definitive history on the half moon cookies either, though they seem to kind of follow each other. For anyone who isn't familiar with a black and white, here's a description from the Food Timeline website. One, it's a soft, round, flat, oversized, chewy drop cake, not cookie, cake, iced in perfect tabs with vanilla and chocolate. And this is very similar to the half moon cookie. Two, it's generally considered a New York City specialty. The half moon is considered a Utica specialty. Three, it is sold fresh in bakeries and delicatessens, and fresh is a key. No pre-packaged half moon or black and white cookies. Four, it's been around for a hundred or so years. That's true of both cookies. Five, it has no definitive inventor, person, or restaurant. Six, it was elevated to national iconic status when Jerry Seinfeld waxed philosophically, look to the cookie. In upstate New York and New England, the cookie is called a half moon cookie. And I know, don't yell at me. I know that they're different cookies. <laughs> I understand this, but they are remarkably similar. Now, here are the differences that I was able to uncover. Half moon is a pillowy, cakey, devil's food cookie, where the black and white is a pillowy, cakey yellow cookie. The half moon is slathered with buttercream, vanilla on one side, chocolate on the other, where the black and white is glazed, vanilla on one side, and chocolate on the other. In his book, Arthur Schwartz's New York City Food, Arthur introduces George Greenstein, who's a retired second-generation Jewish baker who has devoted his retirement to discovering the origin of the black and white. To do this, George has translated old New York neighborhood bakery recipes, which sounds like an absolute amazing project right? to How can me. I that job. I know, right? You have to be a retired Jewish baker. Damn it. I mean, I can be a retired baker, but I'm pumped. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. And his conclusion at the date of publication is that they were most likely invented at the start of the 20th century by an unnamed unidentified baker looking for another way to use a standard yellow cake batter. They were clever, says George. He concludes that the recipe was copied across town. Now, this is one thing that is really important to understand. This cookie is more like a drop cake than it is mm. a cookie. It's not like a sugar cookie. It's not like a shortbread cookie. It's not like a crispy chocolate chip cookie. It's very, very cakey. And that's true of both the black and white and the half moon cookie. Now, in an article entitled The Real History of Black and White Cookies on the Vice website, Joanne Saparo presents a theory that the cookies were nothing more than bakery commercialization 
following baking and interior trends at the time. During this time, cakes had contrasting elements. You had a white cake with chocolate frosting. Now, interior colors were trending more towards contrasting colors. You saw it in the tiles, in the wood floors, in ceramics, in ceilings. So why not capitalize, literally, on this trend of contrast and develop a black and white cookie? When you talk about contrast tiles, I think of that checkerboard pattern that you think of New York subways and whatnot. Oh, wow. Exactly. So now the most referenced origin story that I came across was that the black and white was created by Glazer's Bake Shop, which was opened in 1902 by Bavarian immigrants in Manhattan and has been run by the family since that time. Now, when asked about the origin story for an article entitled A Tale of Two Cookies, published in the Washington City paper, Herb Glazer notes... He isn't precisely sure why his bakery on 87th and 1st on the Upper East Side is credited as the creator of the black and white. He just knows his family's been baking them at the same location since around the time it opened. Well, he sort of knows. I wasn't around then, he says. But that's the legend, and so far no one's debunked it. (laughs) (laughs) So now we come to the symbolism of the black and white. We started out this episode with a quote by Jerry Seinfeld, look to the cookie. It's easy to point out the yin and yang, the ebony and the ivory, the balance the cookie may represent. And articles have been written on the symbolism and lore of this cookie. And as you mentioned, Obama used it as a metaphor for race relations in 2008, calling them unity cookies. But for me... I think that they provide a certain ability to create a ritual around the way that they're made and consumed, much like an Mm -hmm. Oreo. I can choose to make them in the half moon style or the black and white style. I can choose to eat the white side first or the dark side first or right down the middle, depending upon how I feel that day. And like so many food origin stories, pick the one that resonates most with you. Your choice a construct of capitalism, a baked good to promote unity, or a cookie devised by a frugal baker. And if you have a different origin story, let us know. I really am very intrigued by this cookie because it has hit this sort of like crazy iconic status. And seriously, the clip from Seinfeld, and we're going to put it in our show notes, is like 30 seconds long at most. And in fact, the entire episode isn't about the cookie. The episode is about this dinner party that they're going to, that they're trying to get to. I mean, there's so much that struck me about the episode as being interesting in addition to the cookie. The waiting to get service, they get into a fight about who is going to get there first, the chocolate babka versus a cinnamon babka and which one was superior. Seinfeld, of course, was not the only television show to help a food catapult into the limelight. Product sponsorship of media, of course, predates television, but there have been some pretty memorable moments when television food found its way into our lives. Of course, I had to informally poll some of my friends about what foods they were inspired to try based on a television show, and the responses were pretty wild and actually made me feel a little bit nostalgic. My friend Sharon cited trying a brown cow combination of Pepsi and milk based on the Laverne and Shirley TV show. I remember hearing about the drink from that show as well, but I never tried it myself. Sharon said she was not impressed. Oh, I used (laughs) to make those all the time. I loved them. And I don't like soda. I couldn't imagine the idea of like 
fizzy milk, I think. That's why I never tried one. So I've never had one, but I've had plenty of root beer floats, which I think is yeah. not terribly far because it's still dairy in a soda. All right. I'll have to try <laughs> one. My friend Amy said she tried spaghetti tacos after watching an episode of iCarly. And I had to look this one up because I know about the show, but I didn't really watch it. It appears to be a gag recipe within the show involving putting spaghetti with meatballs inside of hard taco shells. The character who creates it in the show says he couldn't decide whether he wanted to have spaghetti or tacos, so he made both. No report on whether it tasted good, but there are actually quite a few recipes for it on the internet. So it's definitely one of those ideas that moved from screen into the real world. My friend Christian told me that he tried a banana wrapped in Kraft cheese after he saw it on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I didn't believe him at first because Christian was a little bit of a trickster and I thought he might be <laughs> trying to punk me. But then I found a video of Mr. Rogers opening up a lunchbox and eating a banana wrapped in Kraft cheese. So the link to that video is in the show notes. Apparently, it was actually quite good. I'm feeling a little inspired right now to, <laughs> to give that a shot. My friend Paulina ended up reviving a childhood passion for frozen Eggo waffles after watching the character of Eleven eating them on the show Stranger Things. Kellogg's actually reported that sales of Eggos jumped 14% with its highest ever social media mentions in October 2017 when season two premiered. And that show in particular has actually been pretty influential in reviving interest in other 1980s mm-hmm. cultural artifacts. Kate Bush, for example, is trending again ever <laughs> since the show used Running Up That Hill in its season four series premiere. So the kids have all thought that they've now discovered Kate Bush. A lot of us Gen Xers are like, are you kidding me? This is probably how the boomers felt when Gen X discovered all their music mm. from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, now I know how much it stings and I'm sorry. Now, I myself am not immune to television food. When I was a young adult and I was working for Tower Records and Video, I would stay up late after work watching movies because I got to bring home tons of stuff. One night I binged something like six episodes of the original Twin Peaks TV show because I never caught it all (laughs) in its original run on TV. And while watching the allure of pie became just too much to resist. And so I went to the grocery store at two o'clock in the morning and bought cherry pie and chocolate milk. And I don't think I've ever actually confessed that before. So now you know a little something more about me. Yeah, I am not immune to food suggestions. And of course, kids of a certain age will easily recall that they're strong to the finish because they ate their spinach as popularized by Popeye. Popeye. <laughs> I'm strong to finish because I eat some spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Toot toot. The animated shorts were produced starting in 1933, and they may have actually aided spinach growers through the Great Depression. Reports that they have credited Popeye with increasing spinach consumption by 33% in the 1930s. Wow. Yeah. More recently, Mad Men had a profound impact on whiskey sales. There was a reported 13.4% increase in one year in 2011, with consumers in the United States accounting for $372 million worth of whiskey sales. Canadian Club in particular, and this is character Don Draper's favorite brand, reported boosted sales up to 23.2% in 2012. Wow. Right? 
Wow. <laughs> Canadian Club. No offense to Canadian Club or Canadian Club drinkers. This is not a whiskey with which I am familiar. I'm more familiar with stuff from the United Kingdom more so than I am with the United States or Canada, if that's actually where Canadian Club is from. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm very ignorant. But a quarter of your sales in yeah. one year, uh, it's pretty remarkable. And while our beloved Golden Girls have been popular again, we recently have had the news that there will be a Golden Girls Cafe popping up in Los Angeles this July, as in, gosh, a couple of weeks from now. And cheesecake will, of course, be foremost on the menu. And who can forget that any time those sweet Golden Girls needed to solve a problem or share a moment, there was cheesecake on tap. Some inspirations from other media include the Big Lebowski's revitalization of what was once considered a very retro cocktail, the White Russian. At the first Lebowski festival in Louisville, Kentucky, milk was reportedly sold out within an entire mile radius of the convention center. Wow. <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe's The Avengers made the already cool shawarma even cooler with their epic movie stinger. Lebanese restaurants in Los Angeles reported an 80% spike of sales in shawarma in the movie's wake. Uh, I remember watching that in the theater and just being utterly blown away by the shawarma scene. After this epic battle where the city's half destroyed, the Avengers kick back at a shawarma restaurant and share a meal. And of course, the beloved Harry Potter universe actually invented two foods that went from the page to the screen to our pantries. I'm talking about Birdie Bot's Every Flavor Beans, which technically is mostly an invention of new jelly bean flavors, but I consider that close enough because they would not have been invented, but for this suggestion. And of course, butterbeer. Yep. Never seen, heard of, conceptualized before, but now we have recipes galore. Galore. So are there any that you can think of, Lay, that you remember watching a show, watching a movie? I'm going to be broad about it and thinking, I got to have that. Most of the things I watched were all about food. So that's kind of a tough one. <laughs> I was always inspired by Julia Child. They, I would come home from school and watch her on PBS. Yeah. Yeah. She was such a joy to watch. She was. She was such a joy to watch. I can't think of anything, but I have been reading a series of books that has so many references to food that I am I'm absolutely inspired after I read these books, these novels. It's, it's set in Quebec. Aww. So lots of French foods. I love how important the food is within the story and how it's woven into the fabric of the story. So at this point, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we are so influenced. Mm. And in, in a way, the answer is a little kind of obvious. We're hardwired to use our eyes and really all of our senses to feed ourselves. We're constantly looking for something that's edible. We have this long history as humans, as foragers. It's just what we do. Everything we look at, we're probably subconsciously, semi-consciously, even flat out consciously can I eat that? I think pretty much any creature alive on this planet kind of thinks that way. But I did find some interesting science behind this. And we're going to have to come back to this and talk about it a little bit more because this is actually a really ripe topic for conversation. But what I'm talking about comes from an article I found titled Eating With Our Eyes from Visual Hunger to Digital Sati Satiation. That's a hard word to say. <laughs> 
satiation, digital satiation, from Brain and Cognition Journal. And the authors speculate that growing exposure to beautiful and sometimes overproduced, over curated, over over fussed <laughs> images of food is leading to this sort of development of visual hunger that can cause us to be drawn to eat even when we're not hungry because we are so visually stimulated mm. by what we're looking at that we have to have it. The article does say this. I'm going to broadly and roughly quote from it. Quote, there is a very real concern that this onslaught of appetizing food images may be having a deleterious impact on certain of our eating behaviors. After all, it is already well known that food advertising increases the consumer's wanting for food, hence increasing their consumption of whatever food happens to be within reach. Research finds that this is true in both children and adults. It would seem that visual hunger may well activate those behaviors that are associated with food consumption in a manner that is relatively automatic, end quote. I know we've we gotten way off base from the Seinfeld black and white cookie here, but it was something that popped into my mind when we were talking about how that episode became such a catchphrase. Look to the cookie, as we've repeatedly said. Now, one thing that I do want to mention here is that we're talking about Seinfeld and the impact that he had, but we do have a cultural group that really identifies with the black and white cookie, and that's the Jewish population. To the point where I have a friend who just published a Jewish baking cookbook, and one of the things that she had in the cookbook was a black and white cookie. And this wasn't something that she was familiar with, so she reached out to another Jewish blogger, and this Jewish blogger said to my friend, are you even Jewish if you don't know how to make a black and white cookie? Wow. Though we do talk about the impact of Seinfeld, this is a yeah. very important cookie to this culture. Yeah. I just did want to mention that. And Abby, I know that we didn't give you a definitive answer about <laughs> the history of the black and white cookie and the half moon cookie. And we did go on a little bit of a segue into how we are influenced by some other types of media on how we eat. But I really hope that you enjoyed the sort of history that I presented <laughs> and some of the things that we talked about as influences in the way that we eat. Sometimes your road trip just does not arrive at the destination you're hoping to arrive at. Or you so. may arrive, but it's an entirely different it's... route than you had initially envisioned. But we really, we so appreciate you and the, the suggestion. Thank you, because it was a lot of fun to play with this topic. We are always open to hearing from you folks, your ideas, anything you're curious about. We really, Leigh and I love to take that stuff on. Keep those questions coming. We, we really love them. Now, coming up in two weeks, we have another episode of our Kitchen Technology series, and we'll be investigating the evolution of cookbooks. And this one is going to be super fun. We're going to talk about all manner of cookbooks, the history of where cookbooks started, and where we think cookbooks might end up in the future. Yeah, that's that one's going to be really fun. Put it on your calendar right now so you don't forget about it. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our family, recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. 
And so you don't miss an episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It really helps us to grow the show. And it would make us so happy if you would share this episode with a friend and review and rate it on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Or if you listen on Spotify, you have the ability to review on that as well. We would love five stars. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack, and we would be so honored and very grateful if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discovery explorations, and our fantastic travel stops. There are three subscription tiers, including one especially for brands, and we are sure that you'll find one that's absolutely perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires. Bye.